The scripture this morning is from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of God. And just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might live through him, might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil." For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And God bless the reading of his word. So this text we listened to this morning contains the most well-known passage of the Bible, Go ahead and say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believeth in him might have eternal life. Right? I screwed that up from the King James, but it's uh, you get the idea. In fact, this passage has become so cliche, I kind of dread preaching about it. It's been called by some the gospel in a nutshell, to which I really take exception, actually, as if, as if the entirety of the gospel could be encapsulated, the, the complexities of uh, the, what Jesus brought into the world could just be contained within something that can be put on a t-shirt or ra- you know, held up in a sign in a sporting event or put on a bumper sticker, one small sentence. I, I, I disagree. <laughs> that it is the gospel in a nutshell. And even if we could capture the gospel in a nutshell, Jesus already told us what that would be. And when he was asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus responded, quoting two scriptures, one from Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then another one from Leviticus, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Jesus' version of the gospel in a nutshell. But even that, I kind of disagree with Jesus. I don't think he can sum it all up in one small little sentence. The issue I have with this quote from John 3.16 is that it, it completely negates all of the, it ignores all of the context around that quote. Uh, this, this story, this, the story that that quote kind of comes from, it begins with Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin and part of the big Jewish elite, or member of the, the priesthood, who was a part of the Jewish elite, who were in the pocket of Herod and in the pocket of Rome, uh, had come to visit Jesus in the middle of the night. And they have a little... This is where the whole born-again conversation comes from. And of course, the lectionary, the people who put together the lectionary, for some reason left that out of this uh, text for this week. And, and I suspect that that's probably because they want to force preachers like me, who would rather avoid this, 
that it forces us to deal with this very obscure reference that is made by the writer of John back to a passage out of Numbers about Moses putting, building a, holding up a snake uh, out in the wilderness. So there's a story in Numbers, in Numbers 21, and it's part of five passages where the Israelites are mumbling about something and they're just grumbling, complaining and whining about being stuck out in the, you know, oh, why can't we just go back to Egypt where at least we got fed three times a day or why can't, and they're just, you know, there's a bunch of whiners and they're out there whining. This time they're whining about food and drink and they're complaining to Moses and at which point the text tells us that God, like many parents since then decides to give them something to really whine about maybe your parents are like mine my father used to say you know stop griping or i'll give you something really to gripe about (laughs) Uh, in the same way god kind of did the same uh thing and and so enters a bed of snakes that keep biting the israelites uh, resulting in many of them dying And so they come to Moses and they are, you know, they beg for mercy, they repent, they ask for for Moses to do something about it. And so Moses goes to God and God instructs Moses to form the likeness of a snake and put it on a a pole and stand it up before the Israelites. So he he makes this snake out of bronze and he stands it up uh, there. And as long as... The Israelites looked at the snake. Uh, when they were bit, they didn't die. If they didn't look at the snake, all bets are off. They, they, they're done for. So, so, of course, fast forward a few hundred years. And if you were to look in 2 Kings, this bronze snake turns up again. When King Hezekiah began his reign, we see that the bronze snake had then been carried along with everyone all the way along and now it was in the temple and there we're told in second kings that people were bringing offerings and and making offerings to the snake now that sounds a lot like idolatry to me and it did to hezekiah too who promptly tore down the snake and busted it up into into pieces probably uh, melted it down and made some jewelry for his wife which is the sensible thing to do uh, so they had made this object, this snake, an object of their trust instead of putting their trust in God. Like the golden calf, the bronze snake had become an idol. So Hezekiah busted it up. For God so loved the, the world. On the heels of this particular, this snake story, comes this passage in question. For God so Love the world. And I, I, there's some interesting things. When I was reading this, uh, there were several commentaries. So I read a lot of commentary on, on this passage. And a lot of, a lot of the commentators were, remo- were hearkening back to seminary uh, when they had to translate uh, John. And I guess this must be standard practice in seminary, seminary that you, you translate parts of John. I also, in my second year of Greek had to translate the gospel of john from greek into english and i 
first thing I'll say is I was I was terrible at Greek. I barely made it. I, I scratched I scratched my way through and just barely made it. But here I am today, so you know whatever. But <laughs> but I do I do remember that. So when I was reading, uh, I had a similar experience as a lot of people translating this from the original. And when you get to this passage, you immediately think, oh wow, no no brainer. You, I can translate that all day. Uh, and so you start to translate it, this very familiar passage. But then you come across uh, this word that we translate as so. God's so, and it's, it's otos. Is that, am I saying that right? Otos. <laughs> I think he's being nice. Uh, and we see that it is different than we are probably reading it. It has a, it has a little different connotation. Because when we read it, we think... Oh, God so loved the world. That is, that God loved the world a lot. Like a whole lot. God God so loved the world. That's kind of how we read it. However, there's another connotation here that is probably what the Jehonian writer meant. Uh, and what it really means is it's suggesting that God loved the world in this way. Thus. Uh, in, in this manner, God loved the world. And it was pointed out to me yesterday by uh, Dr. Brandon Scott that the reason they don't fix this in the Bible is because people are people are so married to the King James Version that translators don't want to f- go too far afield from it. So, uh, which didn't make any sense to me, but whatever. Uh, but anyway, so a better translation or better understanding of this would be God loved the world in this way. Uh, in other words, this is how God showed his love for the world by giving his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, in the hopes that we might indeed experience life. So just as Moses gave the Israelites this snake so that they would trust in God and live, so God gave Jesus so that we might also trust in God and live. Amen? Amen? Amen. Hang in there, people. It was pointed out to me, speaking of Dr. Brandon Scott, he was uh, uh, a colleague of Dr. Key here, who also presented yesterday, and uh, he's he's not nearly as soft-spoken as Dr. Key. (laughs) Uh, But uh, he pointed out, I I asked him, I said, well, so help me out with this text that I'm preaching on tomorrow. And he pointed out that what is crucial here in this passage is that it is God acting out of God's unconditional, overflowing love in giving us Jesus, even, even Jesus on a cross, in the hope that we would, in turn, put our trust in God. Uh, It was important, Dr. Scott pointed out, to recognize that it is not our action, but that it is God's action in the Gospel of John that is salvific, that saves us. And this really brings us to another word in this passage uh, that I, I find perplexing, and that's the word believe. Uh, for John, this word believe is very central. It's because it's a verb. It's, it's an active word. And John almost never uses the word faith in his gospel. He always comes back to this word, opts for this verb believe 
instead. But here again, it does not quite capture the heart of this passage, especially a word like that that has so much baggage. I think there's a lot of baggage in our modern world today in the word believe. Because if you throw that word out, it's more about doctrine and dogma than it is about anything else. When you ask someone what they believe about something, it's a question of, do you, do you agree with this statement or that statement or this creed or that, that idea? It's more about aligning yourself with some particular doctrine or some particular dogma. And I certainly don't know that that's, that's where John is going with all of that. Uh, a better understanding for this passage in John is to understand this really as an invitation for one to trust. To trust in God. To trust that God is faithful. And, and here it, it's about trusting God will be faithful with the promises that have been made. And all of that is evidenced for us by this. That God so love the world in this way by giving his son Jesus Christ. That is the evidence of God's trustworthiness. And so all of this, I'm throwing all of this out here to say this, that this passage, like the snake in the temple, has become something of an idol in that Christian culture has reduced it to a, a pithy doctrinal statement that that either you buy into a whole it, it carries with it a lot of baggage and either you buy into the whole package of what that means or you reject it to your detriment i suppose and it became more about the act of believing certain things certain ideas certain dogmatics and less about what god has done and less about the fact that God has loved, and less about the world that God loved in this way. But the real power of this text is in the unconditional and infinite love showed to us in Jesus Christ. This, thus God's love is shown to us as a manifestation in the person Jesus. And this passage becomes an invitation for you and me to trust the God who has given the world this begotten Son. It's not about belief. It's about trust. Trust that lets us experience real love from God that's already there, that's already waiting, that's already been laid on the table. It's about trust that strengthens us to get through the difficult times of our lives, of which we all have experienced them. It's about trust that we are given all that we need to experience a full and abundant life, uh, with, with, no matter what our circumstances. And this is, another, this is a promise that comes to us from God. Trust that if we are living into that kingdom of God that Jesus talked about in the Gospels, that the world will indeed begin to change. Trust that fighting for justice for everyone will honor God. Amen? It's about trust that when we share, when we give what we have, a portion of what we have, that there is enough for everyone 
that sharing is a core value of who we are. And you can't share unless you trust that God will provide enough. It's about trust that wherever we are today, we can get from here to where we really want to be with God's help. It's about trusting that no matter how we are feeling about ourselves, no matter how much guilt or shame or, or how ugly we think we are, to trust that God sees us as wonderfully and beautifully made and thinks you are glorious. And trust says, I can believe that even against my own voices that tell me otherwise. It's about trust that when we come to the end of this life, that indeed the God who has sustained us in this life will sustain us in the next. There is something more. It's about trust. And so I invite us all this morning to receive this text as an invitation. God loved the world in this way. That God gave His Son, Jesus Christ. That we can trust and have a full and abundant and a wonderful life worth living.